For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 499 of the Columbia Calling podcast. This is the final episode for 2023. We will be back in January, around January the 9th, if I'm not mistaken, with episode 500. We are searching out the ideal person for this, well, numerically significant episode ahead of us. 500 episodes. I think you'll agree that it's pretty special to have got this far, a weekly niche podcast about a country in South America, Colombia, the country that we all love and obviously want the best for. So please think uh, of anyone you would like to hear from. And perhaps if you have any contacts, let us know because we are all ears. And indeed, this could lead to other interviews and guests on the show. So we will be working on this for the next, well, the next month or so. Anyway, so thank you again to everyone, absolutely everyone who supported us on Patreon this year, the previous year, and so on. We are immensely grateful to you. Please share the word. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. Thank you so much to our supporters there. Remember, those of you on Patreon, you do have the free access to Columbia at a Crossroads, a social and historical biography that I wrote about Columbia, a book of facts. And indeed, I will, of course, be putting up a reduced price of better than cocaine, learning to grow coffee and live in Colombia, the first book this year published by my small editorial, Fuller Vigil, and it's by Barry Max Wills. It's out in bookstores now, in all independent bookstores in Bogota. If you just check out our Fuller Vigil, V-I-G-I-L, uh, editorial on Instagram, you'll see the list of bookstores that you can find this in for around 60,000 pesos or just over $10, $12 more or less for this book. An excellent debut novel from Barry Maxwell's uh, located in Columbia's Coffee Zone. There will be more books coming next year from the editorial, so watch this space. Of course, it's basically time for me to say this week's episode will be with the director of Columbia Risk Analysis, Sergio Guzman, and one of his uh, political analysts there as well called Daniel Poveda. Poveda. And they will be talking a little bit about the report on Chinese investment in Colombia, but we'll also be focusing on, well, taking a look back at this year, 2023 in Colombian politics for uh, the presidency of Gustavo Petro, and a slight look forward 2024 what will it herald for the country it's a very interesting episode with which to finish 2023 and i know you'll enjoy it because you always enjoy uh listening to Sergio Guzman on this show he continually draws in the numbers and his show 
when we were talking about the reasons behind the Paro Nacional, or the national strike, all those years ago, in 2019, still remains the most popular episode historically for the Columbia Calling podcast. So there you go. Pretty amazing. That's above people like Wade Davis. It's above other luminaries in this world. But no, Sergio is the most popular for you guys. So it's a, it's a huge um, a compliment that he chooses to come back uh, on the Columbia Calling podcast. And all that's left to say is if for those who celebrate, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And to the rest of everyone, happy holidays. Rest up. And, of course, get recharged for 2024 and all the challenges, success, and light and happiness that it will bring to all of us. So thank you again from myself and from Emily Hart. And she'll be on with the news just now. But thank you from both of us for being such loyal listeners this year. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by... BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own just complete the form on the columbia calling website that's www.columbiacalling.co or the bnb columbia tours website that's www.bnbcolumbia.com and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive colombian adventure so that's bnbcolumbia.com and latin news Thank you for supporting our sponsors. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your headlines for the week of Monday, December the 18th, 2023. Both of the major armed groups currently in negotiations with the government have agreed to halt kidnappings for ransom. Kidnapping remains a key issue in Colombia. Just this week, the Ombudsman's Office published a list of 91 people who remain in captivity in the country. At least 287 people were kidnapped in Colombia between January and October of this year, the highest number since 2016, according to NGO Pares. The second round of peace talks between the government and FARC dissident group, the EMC, the Estado Mayor Central, has come to a close this week, with the group agreeing to halt kidnappings and a mutual agreement to set up a ceasefire monitoring and verification mechanism. The government additionally have pledged to denounce alliances between state security forces and illegal armed groups. The next round of talks will take place in Bogotá in January with a focus on illicit crops and the Amazon, where the EMC is the dominant illegal actor. And guerrilla group the ELN, the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, has also agreed to give up kidnapping this week. It's an issue which has been a significant obstacle in negotiations with the government, particularly following the high-profile kidnapping of footballer Luis Diaz's father. This round of talks, the fifth round, also ended with agreements to extend the ceasefire and address paramilitarism in Colombia.
The next round of negotiations with the ELN will be held in Cuba, managed by the new head of the government delegation, former senator and former M19 guerrilla, Vera Grave, who has replaced Oti Patino. The Constitutional Court declared a state of unconstitutionality due to the persistent, serious and generalised violation of the fundamental rights of social leaders and human rights defenders. The court has called for their urgent protection. So far this year, 182 social leaders have been murdered, according to think tank Indepaz. The investigation continues into President Gustavo Petro's son, Nicolás Petro, for money laundering and illicit enrichment. Meanwhile, his ex-wife, Dave Vasquez, has agreed to collaborate with the Attorney General's office in exchange for immunity. Vasquez would be protected from prosecution for money laundering, for which she is also charged, for two years, having pledged to be a prosecution witness against her ex-husband. She has publicly linked Nicolás Petro to figures in drug trafficking and accused him of embezzling money supposedly destined for Petro's presidential campaign. She does also say, however, that the president himself was not aware. Nonetheless, hours after this deal was revealed by magazine Semana, the Accusations Commission of the House of Representatives opened a preliminary investigation into the president in order to determine whether illicit money entered his 2022 presidential campaign. And more polls this week, with the president closing the year with a 66% disapproval rating, the highest it has been, according to Imbamer. Vice President Francia Marquez shows comparable ratings with 56% disapproval. 56% of those polled favour dialogue with armed groups, and 41% would prefer military defeat. It is the lowest support for the policy of negotiation in nearly eight years. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is episode 499 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Our very special guests this week are none other than Director of Columbia Risk Analysis, uh, Sergio Guzman, and the Analysis Coordinator for Columbia Risk Analysis, Daniel Poveda. And it's a great pleasure to have them both on on this, the final episode of 2023. And we're going to well, we're going to look at a new report they've got out, which is incredibly timely, as they should be, and very interesting. It's entitled Understanding China's Tech Footprint in Colombia, Challenges and Opportunities. But we're also going to look back at the year in politics in Colombia and maybe a couple of predictions for the year ahead, 2024. But first, Daniel, Sergio, welcome on the Colombia Calling Podcast. Richard, thank you so much for having me on again. It's, it's a pleasure to be back. And I celebrate with you uh, 499 episodes, almost 500. I, I'm very excited about the potential surprise you have for us well, in episode uh, 500. It's huge, and I don't know what to do yet for episode 500. So anybody listening, if you've got contacts with someone amazing, you know, amazing, please, please send them in because I really need, obviously, we need a, a landmark uh, interviewee for a guest, my best has said. And, uh, but uh, Daniel, this is your first time on the podcast and you are going to be taking the reins to begin with, I think, about this, uh, this report on, on China, Colombia. And just as one quick question, this is a follow-on. This is a follow-on from the report earlier in the year about sort of China's influence in, in Colombia and so on that we, yeah, Sergio, myself, and 
who was it? It was uh, Tara Torres. Tara Torres, that's it. Uh, who's gone to Oxford, I think, since then. Correct. Amazing. Yeah. Look at that. Look at that academic footprint you have, Sergio. Um, <laughs> but so anyway, Tara Torres, and then that's right. So so tell us, uh, Daniel, tell us about this report. All right. Thank you, Richard. It is my first time on your podcast. I do hope it isn't the last time, though. So I'll tell you a little bit about it. Um, our last report on this subject was called Local Perceptions of Chinese Investment in Colombia. You guys can all download it and read it. It's on our website. And what we found out there is that there's still much to be known about the relationship between Colombia and China. And what we saw is that there is a very special relationship with Chinese tech investment in the country. So what we uh, sought out to do was kind of do a little bit more research on the subject and see what's happening on those, uh, what one could say are initially commercial ties, but we saw a very interesting political factor there. And as you know, Richard, and as we saw in the news recently, well, uh, Colombia and China now consider themselves strategic partners. So I mean, this report comes at a really great time where we can see that we're becoming very, I mean, closer trade partners and also strengthening our political ties. So the report comes at the best time um, where we can see how um, Chinese technology, cutting edge Chinese technology is making an impact in different sectors here in Colombia, such as mobility, transportation, renewable energy, infrastructure, healthcare, security. They have this digital and technological footprint here in the country, and this report is out here to understand how this works and how this investment is present um, uh, in, in Colombia. Mm -hmm. So we talk about this, and we talk about this, as you say, it's a relationship and it's a strategic partnership. But how does this differ from where Colombia was before in the uh, relationship with China? So it's great that you mention it, mention it Richard, because... We do believe that kind of like having elevated these bilateral relations don't really um, mark much of a change in the relationship between the two countries. So what we uh, what we think is that um, this announcement of a strategic partnership was actually kind of a step short or a step shy of actually announcing um, that Colombia was going to sign on to the China's Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. So what we think is that the current government it was kind of timid and hesitant to actually sign on to the initiative and not actually become closer partners. So that hesitation is also very interesting because there were many rumors the weeks before Petro, uh, President Gustavo Petro's visit to China where we thought that um, he was going to sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative, but that didn't happen. So we think that's very interesting. We, we do think that, I mean, this sudden change in the relationship does mean that we're becoming closer partners. However, it does also signal that Colombia isn't prepared and isn't ready to take that next step with China. So that's very interesting. In, in terms of our neighbors in the region, who, who else is signed up? I mean, who is signed up for the Belt and Road Initiative? Because Colombia obviously is a strategic partner in, well, South America for the U.S. And, uh, you know, Gustavo Petro, while he has many, many faults, would understand that that partnership needs to be protected, that with the US, but at the same time, kind of play both off against one another for the benefit of the country itself. So who who are who in the region have signed up for the Belt and Road? 
Well, many countries in the region. Actually, Colombia, it would be one of the last to sign on if we ever did. So um, Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, very recently, if I'm not wrong, Argentina, uh, Chile, Uruguay. So what we do see is that we're kind of lagging in this aspect. And we. I, I'm glad that you mentioned the whole um, United States factor because... We do believe that that is very important uh, for, I mean, whenever the country is going to take the decision to actually adhere to the um, Mm. Belt and Road Initiative. We do think that even though Colombia is sending these signals of growing, having a closer and growing relationship with China, we do believe that since the United States continues to be Colombia's closest ally in the region, well, we do think that this kind of does have an impact uh, and this hesitant hesitancy that we see and being being able to sign on. So mm. that's very interesting. We do think that there's some kind of um, loyalty to the United States and that Colombia hasn't actually figured out that it might we don't really have to choose anymore. And we see that our neighbors in the region are not choosing between the United States and China and do have um, important relationships or at least trade relations with both countries. Uh, however, Colombia being its closest ally in the region, or at least I do believe it to be so as um, mm-hmm. still, well, we do see that uh, that might uh, play as a factor not being a closer, um, having a closer friendship with China at the time. I mean, it's a curious one. It's a curious one as we go into 2024 and what could happen. You know, let's say that let's say that uh, Donald Trump gets the Republican nomination. And therefore, you know, a, a, an incredibly high probability. Again, we're predicting. Let's say he wins the next election, and of course, a lot of his ranting and raving up on stage is about China. Uh, this, you would think, could benefit Colombia by not being, you know, the Belt and Road. But then, of course, the Trump presidency was kind of known for having no foreign policy, real foreign policy uh, objective. So I don't know. I mean, Colombia, you'd think, well, I don't know. This, this, sounds, this, this plan sounds strategic. This plan sounds like Petro, uh, President Petro had it organized, but it doesn't feel long term. It doesn't feel like well, none, nothing in politics feels particularly long term because you've only got the four years. But it doesn't feel long term. What What do you think on on this uh, on this basis then? All right, Richard. Well, um, on the first point of Trump, Donald Trump uh, possibly being president, uh, being elected president next year, we do believe that even though uh, Colombia will continue to be a close ally of the United States, whether it be a Democrat or Republican in the White House um, from 2025. We do believe that a Trump administration could make the relationship a bit rocky and difficult to navigate. Mm. Um, Right now, we have noticed that the Petro administration is interested in having a special relationship and continuing to have a special relationship with the United States. Most of his uh, domestic policies and ambitions and goals need the, the, the support of the United States, such as total peace and whatnot. And I'm glad that you mentioned that this kind of approachment into China doesn't seem long term because definitely what we saw in the report is that these decisions that we're making in technology or with Chinese tech are indeed long term. 
Oh, good. So it's very interesting. So it's very interesting because because even though we're not uh, we're not we don't seem to have this kind of strategic relationship or uh, uh, approachment to China, we are definitely taking decisions that are going to be long term with uh, this Chinese tech investment. So as we can see in the five G tender that's about to happen on the twentieth of December, we're we're going to see who are those great winners of kind of like the 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 spectrum, the five G spectrum. Because we, I know we're late to the party uh, to get 5G here. And what we can see is that these uh, big operators here, uh, telecommunications operators here in Colombia, most of them use Chinese equipment and technology uh, for their networks. So what we're seeing is that Colombia doesn't really have um, kind of like this, um, isn't really thinking this through of this commitment to China on the long term. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that there is an increase of, let's say, Chinese influence or interest in politics. I need you to tell us all about this. All right. So in the report, what we can see is um, obviously China and from kind of like this uh, joint statement that they issued with Gustavo Petro, they say that um, even though we didn't sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative, they do say that we're welcome to do so in the future. So the doors are open um, to actually adhere to the Belt and Road Initiative in the future. We're not sure if that's going to happen during the current administration, though. Mm -hmm. And here in Colombia, what we do see is um, they, they, they do have an interest in in closening ties with us. And we do see that the technology sector is one of those sectors where they have, where, where there's a great Chinese presence. And what we do uh, find out is that we don't really see these investments through a political lens here. Uh, from the China, from China's point of view, well, we know that they're here for the long term and they know that these investments are long term. And I mean, having a great participation in the 5G network will be will, will be very difficult to um, kind of uh, replace or change in the future. And we see that this happening in other sectors of the market. We can see this happening in, in, in mobility where most of, or if I'm not wrong, all of the electric uh, fleet of buses uh, are Chinese. So what we do see is that they they do have this kind of interest of being uh, a close, at least commercial partner. And this tech investment seems to be um, very uh, revealing of how they uh, want to kind of close in, in on Colombia. And uh, we we see this repeated in different sectors. The, I mean, the 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 report obviously has much more details, but it's interesting how this happens in the security sector. Even though we have a very close relationship to the United States in that regard, how that's happening in the health sector. Uh, recently, we saw the announcement of having a, a vaccine uh, production factory that's going to be opened here in Bogota. So we do see that how uh, with all of these uh, technological investments, or at least technological in nature, they are closing in in Colombia and having, well, they do see us in the long term, at least. Mm. So what we can see is that uh, China's kind of setting up the scene for in the future if Colombia has a rocky relationship with its closest allies, well, we can always count on China as a plan B. That's what I see, at least. Oh, okay. When we, maybe maybe this is the moment for Sergio to, to jump in, but when we look at 
let's say, international diplomacy, international relations, what's going on right now? And I see that, you know, Colombia is obviously ideally positioned and very carefully positioned, having reopened a relationship, a diplomatic political relationship with neighboring Venezuela. And Colombia has been the conduit for the U.S., to negotiate with Venezuela, hence therefore you know, the lifting of sanctions and so on. Looking at what's going on now, Venezuela and of course the aggressions, or spoken aggressions as you, as, at this moment uh, towards the Essequibo nation, uh, the part of Guyana next door, um, surely there has to be an influence as well from, from, let's say, Chinese government diplomacy. They're very involved in Venezuela. We're, you know, I, there has to be a connection. It is all a big chess game here. Uh, Sergio, I'm sorry to drop you in that one. <laughs> no, no, I, you know, this is my bread and butter. I think one of the one of the problems with Colombia's foreign policy is that it doesn't necessarily reflect the long-term interests of the Colombian state, mm. but mirrors the domestic political interests of the administration in office. And that's exactly what Gustavo Petro has shown time and time again. Uh, he went to China the week before the local elections to try to get an announcement to underground Bogota's first metro line. Yeah. That that was the objective of the trip. Uh, and he walked away of the first meeting with the Chinese construction company saying that he himself, like the state, would finance 100% the undergrounding of the metro. To me, that suggests, obviously, the, the people in China told him no. <laughs> and also, they, they didn't tell him no because they don't like Petro or they don't like his objectives. They told him no, in part also because if China agrees to finance the undergrounding of Bogota's first metro line without consequences, without penalties, how many other countries are going to be in a line out the door trying to renegotiate contractual terms with Chinese firms that are doing their job? And this, of course, shows that Petro is only thinking about himself mm. in this dynamic geopolitical relation. He, he doesn't understand the global chessboard, as you as you put it very well. Um, and to that extent, I think when we translate that to other conflicts like Esequibo, uh, Petra is looking at it through how is this going to affect total peace? Mm -hmm. How is this going to affect, sort not how is this going to affect Colombia's standing geopolitically? Is this coherent? With what I've said about, for instance, Palestine, where he's you know up in arms about uh, a, a big aggressor state against a smaller state, which is mirror the situation in Guyana. He's obviously calling for peace conferences and talks and dialogues. But uh, you know, look at what's happening in Ukraine. Also, he is also not taking a side in 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 that conflict, but he does choose to side with the Palestinians uh, on 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 their conflict and. You know, I don't want to weigh in on, on the merits of each case, but it definitely shows that Petro doesn't manage foreign policy no. in a coherent way that takes into account the fundamental interests of the Colombian state. But instead, look at his uh, whims, look at his caprichos, uh, look at his sort of way of understanding politics and his, you know, internal turmoil with, with his previous experiences um, and, and projects them. Instead of saying, what is the Colombian government's 
underlying best interest. And this is not a defense of the previous administration or the administration before that. This is more like a reprimand mm. uh, against the Colombian uh, foreign ministry. And the relationship between the foreign ministry and the executive branch and the, and the presidency, because I think right now the, the foreign ministry is completely subdued to the whims of the executive mm. um, of the of the of the president of the chief executive office of the country and not really looking at you know long-term interest in Colombia. And I think a large part has to do with the fact that the people that we put as ambassadors or as consuls uh, abroad are not the most qualified people that go through civil service training. Some of them certainly are and I'm you know I'm sure some of them who listen to this uh, are going to point out uh, the 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 exceptions, but I would remind you they are exceptions. Um, and so we need to we need to professionalize our diplomatic service, and we need to make sure our foreign office uh, is is uh, independent, but also is is one that looks at the state's best interests. Problem with that is every president that comes into office promises a version of that that I just yeah. mentioned, uh, and then quickly after they they take power, they recognize it's a very very important tool for internal political tradesmanship to achieve congressional and legislative objectives. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll just jump off my soapbox, uh, but say, you know, this is this is part of the problem. So, I mean, basically, I mean, I think there's a, a direct arrow pointing at uh, the newly installed uh, Roy Barreras in London. <laughs> I yes, so and, and look, you know, what, what they... What they say is Roy Barreras could come and take the Ministry of Defense, right? Which would be a complete slap in the face to His Majesty the King, to whom Roy Barreras just last week, with a lot of pomp and flair, presented his diplomatic credentials to. So how does it look that Colombia has these diplomats who present credentials, and all of a sudden they get summoned back to the country to serve in office? Mm. Uh, I mean, you know... Who's going to last more as ambassador, Roy Barreras or Aleris, right? <laughs> I have a tough one. But I, I mean, I just think well, if we go back and we go back and we go back, that so much of all of this geopolitical posturing and, of course, the, the games taking place behind closed doors and, and, you know, dark alleyways, I would think, of the diplomatic circles. I want to bring Guyana up again because, of course, the, the, the oil found and it's exxon you know and exxon is obviously of of a different <laughs> section of the world and china very heavily invested into venezuela uh, and venezuela in some dire straits at the moment colombia could be you know could is so well positioned to be an international broker at this moment and i just don't see the current government doing that or am i am i not seeing something that everyone else sees i don't know maybe well, my Daniel, view, i don't and, know <laughs> my my view and, and maybe daniel can can complement this is maduro this is all about internal politics yes. for maduro as well this is about throwing off the candidacy of maria corina machado mm-hmm. who won the opposition primary not making a commitment to honest and open and fair elections uh, in 2024 mm. and 
drumming up some foreign mess, just like in Argentina, in Malvinas, uh, in in '86, trying to trying to create this this array abroad to consolidate power domestically. Having said that, you know, there's a lot of questions about what happened in 1899, yeah. and Colombians should know because that's how we lost Panama. But I also don't see Petro or any other presidency trying to reclaim Panama, for instance. Yeah. Uh, that right now would seem ridiculous to a lot of people. But obviously, to the majority of Venezuelans, it doesn't seem ridiculous. It, it, it does seem that it, that it's, you know, a long-term aspiration of the government. They've had it in their map for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but the thing is, you know, sure, the Petro administration is well-positioned to sort of navigate this, but it doesn't come out as an impartial arbiter because mm-hmm. of its own domestic priorities. I don't know, Daniel, what do you think? You know, definitely um, Colombia should be this kind of broker or mediator with anything that has to do or anything that's related with the Venezuelan political crisis. They mm-hmm. are the neighboring country. It's important to do so. And we saw um, that the Petro administration was very interested in being that mediator and, and actually having that role in order to kind of uh, bring back this uh, democratic transition in Venezuela. And we saw Colombia trying to partner up with the United States to be able to, to, mm-hmm. to do so. And that's kind of how we got this roadmap to uh, these uh, future Venezuelan pre- presidential elections and whatnot. But what mm-hmm. we saw, what we've been seeing recently is this um, – these Colombian efforts have kind of been losing momentum and the United States has kind of gone their own way in, in approaching Venezuela and Petro for, for some reason, because we saw all of this, uh, this energy to, 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 to actually play this role um, has kind of lost sight of, of being that broker mediator in the Venezuelan political crisis. So what we see is, uh, and, and here I'm kind of giving you a sneak peek into what we're trying to do uh, for next year. And one of those big political risks that we identify is the Venezuelan political crisis and how Colombia is going to respond to these uh, potential uh, presidential elections during the second semester of 2024 in Venezuela. So we see though that as one of those major political risks for the current administration is their stance on on the Venezuelan electoral integrity because we see that this roadmap that had been built to be able to bring back the opposition in Venezuela to participate in politics and, and this kind of democratic transition in the country uh we see that they're 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 actually not really um they're not really following through with it so that's going to be one of those big questions to, to deal with next year. I, that's a, a really good one. And I hadn't thought of it. I should have thought of it, of course. But I, I would just imagine that uh, Gustavo Petro will take to Twitter uh, and say something perhaps no, not so astute <laughs> and then sort of publicly declare that he believes in the I don't know, the democratic popularity of the Venezuelan people or something like that, something so so uh, blatantly nebulous that he'll only get further in trouble here at home and then be praised by Venezuela, which in itself is is receiving a poisoned chalice internationally. Um, so there's going to be it's going to be a tough one for that. If we could if we get you know, we, we talk China. We've talked about China a lot. We've talked about China, of course, and the investment in the underground, the metro system here. The the the, the 
that that company is also involved in the highway up through Uraba as well. Is it Czech? Is it called Czech, the, the company, I think? Um, and you've talked about other investments and so on. But let's let's go to, you know, as we've got sort of, you know, another 10, 15 minutes here. But let's look at a little bit about, well, this, how, how, how has the year gone politically in Colombia when we look at this? I mean, investments, if we're looking at... Uh, uh, total peace. I have to shift it a little bit because it is the end of the year. And I know that some people will want a, a bit of a summary of these things. Sergio, how are you feeling at the end of 2023? Exhausted. <laughs> well, we all uh, are. You're that, a new dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's part of it. But also, you know, I think another big part of it is this government creates a lot of news. Yes. So it, so it, it requires us to always sort of like stay on top of it and always like look at the at the minutia and you know look at the inside baseball that's become increasingly um important i would summarize this year in sort of like three sort of big topics and the first has to do with the economy that it settled down after a big ruckus over over petro his his uh his mandate or, or what he came into government sort of proposing has not been as easy to implement as he would have it. So that has that has sort of made markets, particularly bonds investors and people in Wall Street, calm down a little bit about the anxiety there was about Gustavo Petro initially. Um, on the second front, I would say, politically speaking, how Petro has squandered his coalition government he still has some of it but you know he's basically broken up his coalition with all the cabinet shuffles uh there's been an I'll, I'll jump into each of these specifically in in a minute i just want to get my thoughts organized um and then i would you know i would also talk about how petro is losing power after the local elections that happened in october and what that means uh for for the future Okay. Um, we can talk about security and total peace, and we're not very optimistic about that because yeah. that's how the year started, if you remember. Yeah. Uh, at 10.45 p.m. on December 31st, 2022, Petro tweeted famously, we reached a six-month ceasefire with the ELN and with the Gulf Plan and with you know these other six cartels. And all these people were like, wow, you know, <laughs> he actually achieved it. And less than 48 hours later, the ELN was actually not <laughs> quite. <laughs> right. Um, so I think I think Petro's peace um, programs and peace uh, policies have hit a wall, both because of who he's negotiating with, the, the ELN, the uh, FARC dissidences, etc. These are not necessarily uh, the most politically savvy of, of organizations, and they also don't bear in mind the best interest for, for the country. No. And they also don't realize that this is their best chance, perhaps their only chance, of negotiating in good faith with a government that wants to be generous. Mm -hmm. um, that suggests that in the future, future governments will not will not share the same generosity, uh, and they should take advantage of that opportunity. But it seems as though they're they're taking advantage of that opportunity by trying to extract as many concessions as they can from the government, some of which are completely unpalatable to public opinion. For instance, the ELN uh, insists on keeping maintaining kidnapping as a way to finance their activities. 
Famously, they kidnapped uh, Luis Diaz's father, uh, Mane Diaz, and, and that didn't go well with public opinion. But the ELN says, you know, these things are justified. These things are fair game under our ceasefire agreement. And I think, you know, a lot of people call bullshit on that one. Yeah. Uh, and so do I. Yeah. Uh, but what we've seen is that the government's insistence on a total peace and on a ceasefire that is broad and that has tangible benefits for local communities living in rural areas uh, has translated into a greater territorial control by armed actors and organized armed groups in those territories. So instead of strengthening the state, um, it seems as though there's a there's an active debilitation of state capacity at the local level, which is in turn strengthening the agency of these organized armed groups, making it even more difficult and peace more elusive in Colombia as, as a result. Mm. Um, having said that and jumping onto the you know, politics side, President Petro started off the year with a cabinet that many of us were surprised maintained uh, their, their positions. And that only lasted until mid-February when he sacked Minister Alejandro Gaviria, oh, um, who who had been health minister under Santos and was brought in as an education minister under Petro. And after he sacked Gaviria in February, he sacked seven other ministers in uh, March, no, in April, early April. And he said the coalition is no longer, the coalition government is no longer, uh, sent a big F you to the different uh, political parties. And he said, you know, I'm going to take away your jobs unless you you pass my reforms. Um, and instead of, you know, putting in more moderates or people who were known to be technocrats to get things done, he put in loyalists um, in his in his cabinet. And that further cemented the idea that Petro is not going to moderate uh, his aspirations um, to pass legislation in Congress. He's not going to moderate his statements. He's not going to moderate his tweets because Basically, um, and this was a running joke, the adults in the room left. And he's now left with a with an applause group, the, the people who can only applaud what, yeah. what Petro does or says. And that is also, of course, harmful. And then on May 27th, uh, and this is a date that I remember well because it's my, my child's birthday, uh, <laughs> a Laura Sarabia scandal erupted. <sighs> Uh, and that day, you know, we had Nanny Gate, uh, where where Laura Sarabia was, uh, you know, allegedly found to to have conducted a, a very strong search of one of her nannies because she allegedly stole money. But then the nanny came on television and said, you know, she Laura Sarabia had huge piles of cash. Uh, and that she traveled frequently to Venezuela on a charter flight to see Armando Benedetti on multiple occasions. And then Armando Benedetti came out and started revealing things about the government, about alleged uh, finance violations in the campaign, etc. So this quickly became a little nightmare for, for the government um, that it surprisingly, you know, left off pretty unscathed because mm. Laura Sarabi is back in government. And although Benedetti is out of government, he's still not revealing very private information about the, the, the campaign. And so that at least has been contained for now. That And I think that th those revelations can, can become very intricate later on because they also, they also slashed the president's son, Nicolás Petro, 
who had allegedly partook partaken in this uh, web of influencing uh, of financial influences that he's already admitted to uh, to the fiscalia. So we still need to see how this plays out as the trial uh, proceeds and as more evidence and more witnesses reach agreements with the government, with the fiscalia, uh, who's also going to change. So that's, you know, that's to pack that in. The political side is a little complicated for, for the president. In terms of the economy, and as I was mentioning at first, there was all this frenzy about, oh, my God, Petro is a far left wing radical who is going to, you know, expropriate and do all this damage to the economy. And I think a lot of people made decisions based on fear. Mm -hmm. um, and there were some who stayed because they were saying, well, look, you know, Petro doesn't have like the government and the executive branch is powerful, but it's not all power. It can't make these broad changes to the functioning of the economy. The central bank is still independent. The courts are still independent. The, the, the legislature is still uh, independent. And they're not going to you know, bend over backwards uh, for, for the president. And I think when, when people took that view in mind, they were thinking, well, you know, it's going to be it's going to be bad. But how much damage can he do? It was a question that I received uh, frequently. And of course, the president did try to do some damage and still tries to do some damage with uh, holding or withholding financing to the healthcare sector, with issuing emergency decrees in La Guajira to try to get more state financing to that uh, department, to try to make his reforms through executive um, action, to try to push through some of the reforms, uh, including the education reform, the pension reform, and the labor reform, which would be quite negative for, for the business sector, perhaps not the education reform. Um, but then also, the, the president has been trying to continue his policy of climate martyrdom. And let me explain that a little bit, what I mean. Colombia emits only 0.5% of CO2 gases. Um, but President Petro has made a decisive uh, choice not to have new exploration or production contracts for oil, uh, gas, and coal, which, by the way, are close to 80% of Colombia's export basket. So while he's doing that, you know, he's also uh, damaging long-term, and this is this is key, not short-term investment, but long-term investment into these areas, which have continued to be the most important areas for Colombia's overall economy. And this has caused, you know, Ecopetrol stocks to go down. This has also caused the stocks of many of the oil companies that operate in Colombia to go down and have them explore opportunities elsewhere in other countries, like, for instance, Guyana, right? Um, and, so, and so the issue here is, yes, Colombia's economy has withstood a big impact. The dollar started at 4,900 a year, and now it closes right under 4,000. So the Petro administration is giving itself, you know, chest bumps about stability. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, we we have a, a contraction of consumption. We have high inflation. We have a high interest rate from the central bank, and we also have a government that's very willing to engage in deficit. Um, growing policies, such as uh, reducing the price of the SOAT, which is the insurance policy for, for cars and, and motorcycles, um, to, to 
incentivize people to buy it, but people just don't buy it. Uh, mm -hmm. He's also uh, tried to raise taxes on or raise prices of fuel, which is a good policy, by the way. But at the same time, this is going to push inflation upwards. Mm -hmm. And he's also tried to uh, give record increases in the minimum wage, which again, push inflation upwards. So how can he then ask the central bank to reduce interest rates that are meant to control inflation, while at the same time, some of his policies directly incentivize inflation to increase? So that's going to be a big conundrum, you know, as, as the year closes and as next year uh, begins on the economy. Well, and then finally, yeah. and I'm sorry for taking all this time. Oh, um, finally, there's a local elections bill, yeah. uh, which the government lost handily on October 29th. Um, and we can we can we can do a full episode about this. And I think we've 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 already looked at, into it quite, quite a bit in, in this podcast before. But clearly, the voters didn't support or didn't endorse the current administration in its outlook. Instead, they went for known quantities, opponents. They also went for people who had previous experience in local administration and traditional parties. And so in that way, uh, this idea that the government had a mandate or has a mandate for broad change now has an asterisk. Because these local mayors and administrators also have a mandate, uh, and the mandate is opposite to the one given to, to President Petro. So how those two things balance out is going to be a topic that we'll continue to, 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 to look into as 2024 uh, hits. And all of this, all of this analysis that we do is possible because we have people who subscribe. To our newsletter, we have people who uh, reach out to us and ask for consultations because we're able to think about the country's long-term perspectives. So, for all you listeners out there, uh, institutional or otherwise, you know, you are more than welcome to help us uh, grow and help us write these fabulous reports that we do. Uh, no, no small. Uh self-promotion there from Sergio, but very well deserved. He had, the Columbia Risk Analysis actually enjoyed their fifth anniversary this year, a huge deal. Uh, I, I was honoured to be invited and be this bum of a journalist, Vagabond, was there rubbing shoulders with diplomats and people of, of industry. Um, but it was quite quite the event, and congratulations to Columbia Risk Analysis on their five-year anniversary. That was a very, very big uh, summary of what has happened and what will likely happen. And I don't know if we can add very much to that because, I mean, Daniel, has there been something that Sergio missed? I doubt it, but, uh, you know, feel free. I think Sergio actually mentioned most of it. I would just <laughs> add um, that I do believe that there's still hope um, for um, for Petro's total peace uh, plans. We're going to see this year is going to be very challenging for the government. Uh, we have a new person now steering the wheel on Petro's uh, peace policies uh, that was um, recently uh, announced, which is uh, Odi Patino. The government all actually has to come. I mean, they have to think through how they're going to overcome the foot dragging in Congress in order to pass major reforms. 
So that's going to be another big challenge for the government next year. And also there's kind of like this big question mark and what's going to be the future of these institutional clashes or crisis with um with the new attorney general, which is also going to be selected um, in, in, in during, I, I would believe, early next year. So uh, that would be kind of like the, the way we see some efforts from the current government with this so-called national agreement to be able to kind of build up political capital and be able to pass these very ambitious reforms and, 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 and plans for the country. But as I said at the beginning, I do believe, as, as it was mentioned by Sergio, it's going to be another very challenging year for the Gustavo Petro administration. As, as Sergio said, it's exhausting because this government creates so much news. And and I, I went I went off and worked. Well, I was working offshore uh, for a month and disconnected myself from the continual slew of the Colombian news cycle. And it was a cathartic break. It really was. <laughs> it really was. I could actually stop being quite so uh, parochial, I think, about Colombian news and just sort of looking at international news a bit more. It's like, oh, it felt it felt good. But, you know, we'll work on this. So we all have to you know, suck it up and and, uh, and understand what's going on. But thank you. Listen, I think this is a great, uh, great episode. I think we've really covered a lot of ground uh, in order and especially not not least your report on uh, on China's investments in, in, in Colombia and so on. I think that's well, I think that's very important. I think people should definitely read it. You can find it, I guess, on the website. Is it up there? Is it so Understanding China's Tech Footprint in Colombia Challenges and Opportunities? It's from December 2023. So hot off the press. Just go to Columbia Risk analysis.com right columbia risk analysis.com of course it's all over twitter and facebook and everywhere else as well you can find columbia risk um but yes get in touch with them get in touch because you know it's a, it's a small team the email will likely go to the boss <laughs> and if you are a student out there international relations politics so on doesn't I mean, irrelevant of where you are based get in touch with them they're always looking for some people to get involved hands-on experience uh, help writing these documents, etc. It's uh, I've seen a lot of people go through those doors. A lot of people are moving on to, well, obviously they're not moving on to greater things. They're moving across. Let's say they're not moving on to greater things. But <laughs> that I mean, it is. But how many people do you have now working for you, Sergio? So we have a staff of ten, ten. Uh, and that doesn't include yes, and that doesn't include uh, the the people who come for short stints as volunteers or interns. Um, and again, many of these uh, documents are, are written with their effort, and they have a direct influence in how these documents are written, where 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 they go, um, and we of course will, will push this uh, forward uh, yeah. for for many of them. Uh, and so, in a way, you know, if you are a graduate student and you don't know what you're doing over the summer, you know, reach out to us. Find us on LinkedIn. Find us on uh, Twitter. Uh, social media, et cetera, let us know that you're interested and perhaps we can find something to do. If the university has a capstone or funding to to bring you and a lot of the universities do. Um, again, we can we can work something out, but we would love to use your talent to continue building on our stellar reputation so far. A stellar reputation indeed. Let me take this moment and say 
Thank you again to Sergio Guzman, the director of Columbia Risk Analysis, Daniel Poveda, the analysis coordinator uh, at Columbia Risk as well. It has been a fascinating and, as always, enlightening chat. There is hope. I mean, Daniel came in with, with, with positive aspects there at the end to give us a lift. It's the end of the year. We are all exhausted. It really is. And I don't think next year will be any less exhausting. I think that's the truth of it. I think that's what we'll take from it all. Uh, but it has been a great conversation with you all. Let's just to say, well, Merry Christmas to those who celebrate and a Happy New Year to everyone. And thank you, Sergio and Daniel. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to everybody who's listening. Thank you, Richard. Happy holidays. Hope to be back on the podcast soon. Uh, you will be. Uh, Columbia Risk is on here about three or four times a year, so you'll be back on before we know it. So, And all of you, the listeners out there, Thank you so much for your continued support, your continued listenership throughout this year. We're almost at 500 episodes. The first episode next year will be episode 500. Emily and myself are looking for a star performer to come on as a guest. So please, any ideas, any people that you can think of, any connections that you have, we are all ears. But that is us signing off for 2023. Thank you again. And, well... Until 2024. Bye-bye. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own just complete the form on the columbia calling website that's www.columbiacalling.co or the bnb columbia tours website that's www.bnbcolombia.com and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive colombian adventure so that's bnbcolombia.com and latin news Thank you for supporting our sponsors.